Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas, where each week we bring you some of the most interesting conversations and stories from across the bike world, while also on occasion going beyond bikes to look at some of the biggest ideas and innovations that could help us take better care of this planet that we all call home. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Dave Weens is carving out one very remarkable life, and I had a great time sitting down with him recently in our Blister headquarters in Crested Butte. Dave and I talked about his background in adventure sports and his early aspirations to make ski movies, his participation in the early days of mountain biking, his winning of the Leadville 100 six times in a row while beating Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong along the way, and Dave and I also talk about what he has learned over his long career of working on trail access and development, and we get a fresh update from the current executive director of the International Mountain Bike Association on IMBA's current agenda and plans. This was a really fun and informative conversation, and I am very pleased to be able to share with you my conversation with Dave Weens. Well, Dave, welcome to Blister Headquarters. Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, fun having you in here and, uh, you know, letting you see the place. So. Yeah. No, it's great. I love seeing the lineup of, of skis. and We got, got a couple bikes in here at the moment, but uh, these bikes are big, man. Storing bikes is always a challenge. I, I, it's probably a lifelong challenge of yours, come to think of it. This is going to be real fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and we've, uh, we've kind of had this in the works for a while now, but um, I would love to just go ahead and kind of start with a bit of the background. So where did you grow up? Grew up in suburban Denver, okay, Arvada for a long time. And then we moved over into Southeast Denver, Inglewood. Okay. And so then as a kid, what were the first things that you were into? Oh, you know, probably when I was young, it was, well, first of all, it was, it was riding my bicycle. And it was purely because of the freedom that the bicycle gave me to, to, to go. And I remember getting that bike when I was six. Um, that was my first brand new bike. I remember my dad taking the training wheels off before that. But once I had a bicycle, uh, I was gone. And where I went to elementary school, you couldn't ride your bike to school until you were in fourth grade. And so once I was in fourth grade, I was you know stoked because I could ride my bike to school. And um, you know my friend and I, or just be, me on my own, I would ride my bike all over. But it wasn't necessarily the bicycle itself that that was. I mean, there were some trails on some of the vacant lots around Arvada, and and I would ride around on those. Uh, that was fun. But it was more the freedom that that the bicycle offered me. Um, but also, as a, I was I was way into football and started playing football as soon as I could when I was eight years old, and uh, you know did that for about four years. Played the you know the Jefferson County version of Pop Warner. And enjoyed that, but uh, my family and my mom and dad—they were both from from farms, one in Kansas and one in Idaho. You know, however they ended up in Denver, and however they decided to expose us to skiing as a family. You know, hey, we're going to go skiing, so we were exposed to skiing. But you know, they weren't skiers, uh, and you know, both my brother and I—it uh, really you know resonated with us, especially with my brother. He was a bigger skier than I was as a kid, but uh, we also went on a, on a rafting trip on the Yampa River, a commercial rafting trip when I was six. Uh, and we did a lot of camping. So they exposed us to the outdoors 
uh, even though they weren't exposed to it, that it was just, hey, we're living in, in Colorado, let's go do these things. So there was a great background in in that. And then I got a lot more into skiing, um, you know, when I was in high school, my brother was working in a, a store down in Denver called Sports International, it was a specialty alpine ski shop. And uh, eventually I started working there as well. So really got involved in, in skiing uh, as a, you know, teenager. And then also uh, a friend of, and I in, in uh, over in Arvada, we took these little vinyl boats up on Clear Creek when we were 14 and uh, we went rafting, um, you know, in the river. And uh, that just hooked me in. And I suddenly became obsessed with, with uh, whitewater as a 14 year old. And, and I, you know, devoured every book I could find on, on, you know, rivers and rafting. And there were four of them at that time. So it didn't take long. Um, but then started, you know, eventually bought a raft and started doing that and, and, you know, bought a few other, you know, watercraft before I finally started uh, kayaking as a senior in high school. And so really that was sort of, you know, my, my passion as a, uh, senior in high school was, you know, skiing and kayaking. And that's what I was going to do. You have certainly made a name for yourself in the mountain biking world on a number of different fronts. And so you go from being a pretty normal sounding active kid in Denver who loves bikes and football and skiing and kayaking stuff. You, you have this whole world going and then well, yeah. So then, all of a sudden, you know, you're a senior in high school, and, and that that next year is the is you know a blank slate. And really, I, I wasn't academically inclined. Um, I was interested in in pursuing skiing and kayaking, but you know, college wasn't out of the question. So it's pretty natural as a as a kid growing up in Denver. You when you're looking at the mountains in those those sports, you're looking at what was Western State College at the time, now Western Colorado University, and Fort Lewis and Durango. And for whatever reason, you know, I visited Western. And Crested Butte was a big draw, you know, knew it was a good mountain. And um, that was the that was the biggest draw for me. So, you know, right out of high school, enrolled in, in Western as a freshman. And, uh, you know, had my kayak, had my skis. At that point, I had sort of started to um, pursue ski racing. Late in the game, I became very interested in ski racing from some of the, the guys I was working with in that ski shop uh, that I was telling you about. And um, you know, wanted to wanted to pursue pursue ski racing, even though I, you know, I knew that you you needed to start a lot younger, <laughs> but that wasn't going to bother me. I'm going to give it a go anyway. So you know, went out for the Western State ski team, and that was actually on a lark. You know, one of my friends there, and we're freshmen. We're you know, you make those new friends. He's like, hey, let's go out for the ski team. I'm like, I've never I've never ski raced in my life. Um, and I'm certainly not going to make this team. They're like, oh, it's, it's dry land training. It's fine. And then you get cut from the team, but we'll be in really good shape for skiing. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's great. We'll do that. So, you know, the Western State ski team was such a, it had a very profound influence on me because huh. it was hard. It was like football practice. Yeah. And you went every day. If you were 30 seconds late, you had to go run the hills. Uh, if you missed a practice, they'd take you out of town in a car and you had to run the power lines back to town. Uh, a lot of running, but a lot of fun too. A lot of soccer, a lot of agility, uh, a lot of camaraderie with that team. Um, and you know, I learned a lot in the in the, just doing the dryland training. And I got fit. And then, yeah, you know, we had tryouts, and I didn't even want to do the tryouts. And they're like, "No, oh, come on!" And there were other people like me that you know, there was no way we were going to make that team. And we didn't, and we got cut. <laughs> uh, but then we were in we were in really good shape for for you know our first ski season in Crested Butte. Hmm. And that was the time when Crested Butte didn't have any surface lifts at all. You had to hike the North Face. Yeah, there was a boot pack above the old Silver Queen that went up to Big Shoot and some of that, and um, you know that you know rarely got skied. And the Phoenix Bowl, you could you know the Million Dollar Highway was about as 
as high as you could get into to Phoenix, and yeah. it was only occasionally open, and that was that was really it. Uh, it was a, a much different area at the time, but um, you know, it, it was still. I mean, it was as, as as good a skiing as there was in Colorado for for steeps. And I remember distinctly as a freshman being up on top of West Wall, and my legs were just just quaking. And I, it just hit me. I'm like, man, to, to be able to ski here, you have to be fit and you have to be strong. And right now, I'm, I can't even, I can't even turn. My legs are just rubber. I just remember that so, so vividly that you know something clicked in my head about the fitness, you know, required to to ski uh, or to ski well. And um, you know, I, something that then I would, you know, try to always pursue, I guess, um, you know, and, and the more you ski, you can't just get off the couch and go ski and, and really expect your legs to be there. So it needs to be consistent. But you know, those are all, you know, a lot of stories of, of freshmen at Western going up to, to ski Crested Butte and, and having their eyes open to the terrain and, and the quality of skiers. And at that time, of course, telling was all the rage and, and half of the mountain of Crested Butte were on those little tiny telly skis and leather <laughs> boots. But that's a whole different story. I, I never got pulled into that world. I stuck with the Alpine stuff. Bikes are still a part of your life then in college at this point, or you've kind of moved away from bike stuff? Or Yep. It's interesting. I rode a bike a lot until I was 16. Got a driver's license, had a car, didn't ride the bike anymore. Because So that shows you that then, then the freedom was now I could, now my range had been expanded <laughs> yeah. greatly, and I could go skiing, and I could go kayaking. Uh, but I did come back to the bike and I remember buying a road bike and, you know, it was for fitness and it was probably for fitness for skiing at that time. Um, and just did a couple rides. And at, the, at this time, mountain bikes were, were coming onto the scene. And it was, it was funny in that shop that I worked in, uh, in Denver, uh, the owner said, you know what, that, and then we got it, we had a bike shop, you know, we sold 10 speeds. Uh, remember if you remember 10 speeds, um, but they said, you know, that mountain biking, that's a fad. We're not going to bring them in. So they didn't bother with mountain bikes. So an, another guy that worked there, we ordered these, these beach cruisers with side pull brakes, five speeds that we could afford. They were probably 250 bucks. Uh, the brand was Trailmate out of Florida because they looked like mountain bikes. And we, you know, tried to make them mountain bikes. And I'll never forget. We built these bikes up. We took them to the Cherry Creek State Park nature trails. And they're these single track trails in this totally flat forest. And we, we went into the forest and we just derbied around in there and we came out just dripping in sweat with huge grins on our faces going, that was amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the real first mountain biking that I did, but I couldn't afford a mountain bike. I had my kayak and I had skis and, you know, was, was a poor college student. And, yeah. you know, the, the stump jumper was about what you could get. And it was $700 at that time. I didn't, there was no way. Yeah. I called it the elusive toy. I wanted one. I knew it would suit me. Uh, it looked incredible, but I just didn't have the resources. And there were no used bikes. You couldn't find a used bike. Used bikes in the 80s were very rare because they're just, they just weren't out on the landscape. But so then that trail mate ended up, it was funny, that bike ended up coming to Western with me and, you know, r roommates got a hold of it and did different things with it. Actually took it to a guy, uh, Dr. Schlegel was a dentist in Gunnison. He put brazons on it for cantilever brakes. So a friend of mine was, was kind of building it into a, a more proper mountain bike. It was still, a, you know, kind of junky, but <laughs> we used that bike to do a shuttle on Westwater uh, one time. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that, that bike, you know, I was, I, was, I was sniffing all around mountain biking, but never really could get in until 1985. I was back in, in Denver working at that shop in the summer and we had specialized in the store. We didn't sell the bikes, but we sold some of the touring gear. And the rep, I got a, a specialized stump jumper, an 85 stump jumper on closeout. It was like five or 600 bucks. 
and there I had it. I had my mountain bike. I bought it way too big. I still have this bike down in Gunnison. It's, it's, huh. it's way too big for me. Um, bought it in the fall and then moved to Jackson Hole. To now, I'd given up on ski racing as a career, and now I was pursuing extreme skiing. And at that time, it was Scott Schmidt and Glenn yeah. Plake. That was everybody. And <laughs> the, the ski movies at the time, of course, Warren Miller had been around forever, and um, Greg Stump was the only other filmmaker that was really out there. Uh, so I'm going to move to Jackson Hole, and, and you know the first person I met in Jackson Hole was Doug Coombs up on the top of Snow King Resort. They had you know opened early. There were th- there was three feet of snow on Thanksgiving Day. They had opened Snow King, except the lift broke, so they couldn't get up. So I ended up. I mean, I think I sidestepped up the mountain <laughs> with my 207 Atomic slaloms, and there was there was someone else who had you know done something similar to get up there, and it was this guy. I met him. His name was Doug, and and uh, we hung out and we skied down and. Um, you know, we were never buddies there, but, you know, we knew each other and I knew the Hunt brothers, John and Rick, and kind of got to know these guys just a little bit and skied with them. But I was always the guy that had, that could, would just ski up as they were starting to go again. So I was just barely hanging on to them and, and, um, you know, skiing with John Hunt and skiing the Alta shoots. And he's like, Hey Dave, let's go over here. It's Alta one and an eighth. And, you know, it was some just crazy stuff. Uh, and so it was eye opening for me because I really realized how dangerous that game is. Yeah. And while I enjoyed my time there, I pulled back from, from like thinking that, that I could be one of those guys. And what I became interested in at that point was, and Teton Gravity Research, I think was just getting going there. And those guys were, were, I think they were immersed in that. Um, but that's what I started to think is, you know, maybe film and video, uh, I've got these skills. I'm a pretty good kayaker. I'm a pretty good skier. I'm not going to be you know, the guy that's doing the, the really crazy stuff, but, you know, maybe I can be there, you know, shooting. So when I went back to Western after living in Jackson Hole, that was the idea to, hmm. to pursue film and video. And, um, you know, that was sort of my, finally, I was having a, a career interest outside of, um, you know, pursuing these sports, but I could, would allow me to continue to pursue those passions. But so with that, with that stump jumper bicycle, I had it up in Jackson and um, you know, didn't really get to ride it up there a whole lot. And then went to Alaska the next summer uh, to be a river guide and do some kayaking. And that was the summer of 86 and did my first two mountain bike races in Alaska. And uh, they were really fun. It was, it, was, it was super intense and I enjoyed the competition. Uh, I think I got third in, in most of it. It was really grassrootsy, the Mountain Biking Association of Alaska, actually a fairly early adopter to, to mountain biking. Uh, Kincaid um, Park was one place we raced. That's where they have Nordic ski trails near Anchorage. And then I also raced up in the Wasilla area. Just did those two races. So kind of got hooked there. Uh, and then eventually came back to Western uh, the summer of 87. And when I got back to Gunnison, moved back to Gunnison. So I was kind of on and off living in Denver, in Alaska, Jackson Hole, things like that. Came back to Gunnison in summer of 87 to, to go back to school. And a lot of my friends from before were racing mountain bikes. So I just sort of slided in, slotted in with them and started going to the races and, and started to, to do okay. And the Diamondback team had a local presence through the tune-up bike shop and got in with those guys. And, and that's how uh, you know, I got a relationship with Diamondback going, ended up being my first sponsor. And this really cute girl named Susan DiMatteo was riding for Diamondback, got to know her a little <laughs> bit. And we were great friends for a long time as teammates. And so it was just, I was in the right place at the right time, was really lucky. And, and at that point, then the mountain biking really took off and, and I, I started paddling a lot less. Summer of 87 was, you know, kind of started to not paddle as much in the kayak because mountain biking is obviously very summer intensive. Kept skiing, but certainly not on the same level, but had a pass almost every year. I used to pack snow 
you know, I packed snow, I think in 91 and 92 for a pass. And then it was 120 hours of packing, but you were in phenomenal shape. And I was always, you know, whatever keeps me fit is gonna be good. Um, so skiing in Crested Butte's always been part of my training program. It was never, I, I shouldn't ski because I might get hurt. It was, <laughs> I need to ski because I have to ski. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't skiing as much, but you know, I got some great days in and, and um, so that's how, that's really how I got started with the, the mountain biking career. And, and again, it was just very fortunate and lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Mountain biking was a really small sport. It was essentially based in Colorado and California. So immediately when I started racing, the expert class raced with the pro class and they combined it. And so there was Ned Overend and Mike Closer and John Tomac, they were in the race. And I got to you know, gauge myself against them yeah. from the beginning and um, just kept plugging away. And, and then you know, finally had kind of a breakout race at the, uh, the Swatch World Championships in 1989. Now that wasn't the UCI Worlds, 1990 was the first year that it was the UCI Worlds. Um, this was, you know, before the unification, but, um, kind of came out of nowhere at Mammoth Mountain and, and took third in that race and, and, you know, passed John Tomac and net over and on the last lap. Um, so that was where I really, you know, validated for myself that I could, that I could compete. And, um, that kind of started, uh, started me off on, on the career. So for that Mammoth race, how much of this did you already know, like, this can definitely be a career for me, or it was still a bit of a self-exploratory period? Yeah, no, I think it was, um, this could be, this could be a career, but it was always, you know, I always love the challenge. I want to test myself. So, um, and that's really what it became was you, you get into a race and, and your, your goals are probably fairly realistic to start, not really knowing what you can do. But I had success in the expert class, you know, raced half a season in 87, won some expert class races, moved up to pro for 1988. And when you do that, you just check the box pro, and then you, you, that's how you turn pro. <laughs> um, and, and I was, I, I really, I was, I was dedicated, but I didn't know a lot about training. I mean, I just would go out and ride my bike yeah. and I didn't ride a road bike. A lot of these guys came from road racing and they, they were road racers and, uh, they would ride the road. I just, I was, in, I loved mountain biking. I loved exploring. I would get the, this is before the Trails Illustrated maps. So all we had was seven and a half minute quadrangle maps, which, I mean, you could ride across that map in about 10 minutes, <laughs> but I had all these maps. I would just get these maps out and I would, in Gunnison, I'd look around. And at the time, you know, the trails up here were, were known, 403, 401, the Dyke Trail, but they had just been discovered by, you know, that, that generation of mountain bikers before me. And it was a, it was a big world of, of exploration and, yeah. and there, you know, it wasn't as much like it is today where everything's pretty well known, but Dr. Park, you know, that, that that's really, it's a, an amazing ride and you go in there. And so that's what it was for me. It was just going on epic rides and whatever fitness I got from that, I would take to the race course and it worked, it worked pretty well, but uh, I never felt like I had, sometimes out riding, I just felt so strong. And I'm like, man, if I can ever just have one of these days when I'm racing, I think I can, I think I can be as good as these guys. Um, and then it, it finally happened, I think, in that race at Mammoth where things just lined up for me on that day. It was at altitude and I came from, from Gunnison and, you know, Mammoth, that's a nine, 10,000 foot course. Uh, if you look back on my results, I, I had a lot of success at, at altitude. Yep. Um, I had some, some good races in, in lower elevation areas too, but certainly, um, you know, being a good altitude racer helped me out, um, born and raised in Denver and all that. Um, so. Yeah, and, and and I wasn't. It's still at Mammoth in '89. I wasn't training yet. 
I didn't start training until I was really struggling in 1990, the next year. And, you know, I had a really good race, got third in a national in, in a, um, April or May. And then I started kind of tanking a little bit. I didn't know why, but I was still, my training was just the same thing. I was just going out and riding my mountain bike all the time and just going for cool rides and probably riding kind of medium all the time, never riding really hard and never really taking it easy either. And then I picked up Greg LeMond's complete book of cycling. And in there, there was a chapter on training and fitness for the cyclist. And I just took, took what he talked about, my, macro cycles, micro cycles, structure of your week, you know, sprint days, intervals, endurance rides, all that kind of stuff. And then a, a magazine had, you know, Ned Overend's training tips. And I asked Ned, he goes, Ned, so, you know, is this, <laughs> this baloney or what? He goes, no, those guys, I gave them something just to look at. And they printed the whole thing. So <laughs> I, I, I borrowed a few things from there and I just, you know, picked and choose from different places. And I just assembled a training program and, and got on some cycles. It wasn't, you know, anything as, as um, you know, detailed as what's available today or what some guys do. And I never, I never got to that level. I didn't, that, that kind of crushed my spirit a little bit. So I had to find that balance, what yeah. works for me. So it's, it's definitely some systematic training, but always keeping it, you know, very mountain bike focused. And I started doing that. And I was just talking to Susan about this two nights ago. I, I, I put together a plan. I started to execute on it. And within four or five weeks, I won a Norman National in Park City. It was like, whoa. So that this this seems to work pretty yeah. well. And then, you know, that 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 helped my career, you know, winning that at that time a Norman National was as big a race as you could win. Yeah. Uh, the, the World Cup didn't hadn't really come on the scene yet. So that established me in the world of mountain bike racing, and and you know sponsorship at that time was was um, was good with the bicycle companies, and and so I had that you know the ride with Diamondback was 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 already doing that, um, and it was a good time for for cross country mountain bike racing. You know there were a lot of guys and a lot of girls getting paid um, to race bikes, uh, and, you know Americans primarily, and and uh, it was a, a fun time. It was a fun bunch of people. Um, we were all friends, you know, we all competed against each other on the course and, and left it all out there. But then, you know, we would hang out and travel together and, and party together after the races. And, and, um, you know, it was a, it was a special time again, very lucky to have been able to experience it. So give me a bit of a recap of then the nineties in general. I mean, early nineties or 90, 1990 is where you are really kind of, you've popped and are established Talk to me a bit about that decade then for you. Yeah, so um, the, the World Cup started in 91. And, you know, I remember Ned's prophetic words, careful guys, the Euros are coming. Yeah. And, you know, sure enough, it wasn't very long and Europeans got a hold of mountain bike racing. And it would just be like if some crazy brand of football popped up in Europe and we were, you know, slow to come to it. But once we, once we, once Americans got a hold of it, we would take our system of, you know, junior high, high school and collegiate you know, football and develop it. And we would just, you know, we would crush it. That's what Euro Europeans did with mountain biking. They had the infrastructure for cycling. It was still riding a bike. It's still pedaling a bike, racing a bike, cyclocross, wasn't that much different. Rocky, rooty, nasty, off-road. So it just took them, the sport started here and it just took Europe a little while to come around. And it wasn't long and, you know, the Euros were, were dominating the sport and the Americans, particularly the men, we were, you know, we slowly started to, you know, not be as competitive. And, um, you know, that was, that was really the experience. It was almost like this flash of 1990, 91 to 93 for me. And then starting in 94, 95, it, you know, the competition really got tough. I mean, just straight up, it was a lot more competitive. There was more depth and it really became difficult to compete on the World Cup. 
Uh, so you saw a lot of Americans pull back and just race in the national series at that point. And um, we could do that. There was, there was still a lot of, you know, there was decent sponsorship and, and that whole world. But at the same time, I was um, completely, I wouldn't say obsessed, but a little bit obsessed with riding and the quality of riding and where we could ride. And, and around Gunnison, we had the Hartman Rocks area. And I, I became involved in, in the trails out there early on. Uh, you know, as, as soon as we started riding out there, it wasn't purely about racing. It was about riding mm -hmm. and, you know, what we could do. And there were, there was a, a, you know, there were some trails at Hartman's and, and um, you know, working with the, the BLM, who is the land manager down there. And over the course of, of many years, the trail system that, that we now know at Hartman's developed. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of, um, you know, myself and many others down there had a lot to do with the development of that trail system. And that was always, you know, in, in tandem with training and racing was, you know, the trail, the trail piece. And at that time, you know, IMBA started in 1990. And, you know, I think I was a, a member pretty quickly out of the gate, didn't know much about it, but um, certainly understood what they were, what they were doing and what they were about and um, got to know some of the, the people at IMBA. And, you know, really the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association is the oldest, you know, local mountain biking organization on the planet. Um, so we had work days uh, up here and I would, you know, par participate in those every now and then. And um, just the way that the trails developed for mountain biking and some of the issues that we, that we faced around here and being involved in that but we never had that Gunnison organization. And it was really interesting, like, gosh, Crested Butte, and they'll come down and they'll, they'll help us in Gunnison now and then, mm -hmm. but it never happened, it never happened. And, um, but finally, uh, you know, the, the maintaining of the trails, uh, the, the meetings that were happening, there was a, a point in time where the BLM initiated a recreation management plan for Hartman's. And so there was this time when there was a word on the street is they're gonna close a bunch of trails out at Hartman's. And, you know, went to this meeting and that was actually the case. There was this group that they had put together. Um, it was, you know, someone from the four-wheel drive community, a motorcycle, a hiker. Um, there was mountain bike representation, but it was someone who didn't really know the area that well. Uh, and these other people, it was, it was amazing to me. They didn't know Hartman's. Whereas, I mean, we knew the place like the back of our hand and they're talking about places they don't even know about. And there were several trails on the chopping block because of um, natural resource concerns. Skiff milk vetch uh, was one. That's a, a, a plant that's out there. Gunnison sage grouse. So archaeology. There were there were several trails that were going to be closed because of really it was is archaeology and the skiff milk vetch plant. And I think that had I not showed up there, they would have been closed because people didn't really know to say anything different. And I said. Well, look, the skiff milk vetch colony is, is confined to this area. The archaeology is here. We can reroute these trails around those concerns, right? And then, and then the other the other folks on that committee were like, "Yeah, that you know that makes perfect sense." So, uh, I think I brought a lot to that group as far as the local knowledge and what we can do with our trails, and ended up, you know, and the, the trails that, that really came out of that were freefall was on the chopping block, what now has become top of the world was on the chopping block. The Ridge Trail was on the chopping block because of um, uh, private property trespass. Dirty Sock was on the chopping block. The Aberdeen Loop, I mean, there were a bunch of them that were, that were going to be closed, but it was as simple as, as rerouting them gateway. And so some people probably won't remember this, but there were reroutes that took place that actually enhanced the experience immensely, made the trails longer, 
and better and took the trail out of those areas. So that was a learning process for me. And then the BLM, uh, some leadership changes happened down there and, and uh, a gentleman named Brian St. George came in as the field office manager and completely changed the culture of that, of that field office and made it a lot more pro-recreation. Uh, Christy Murphy and Jim Lovelace came in as, as rec, um, rec managers. And you know now Hartman's and the BLM around Gunnison um, as well as you know, still working with grazing and and you know other things is is a very recreation friendly area, um, and mountain bikers had a big big part in that. And I guess the other element of, of all of that got me going down the the road of an, and I, I'd known that we could have an organization, but I never I was always sort of didn't want to do it. And finally in 2006, I said, this needs to happen. I'm going to start Gunnison Trails and um, and started that organization and had a lot of help right out of the right out of the gate. A lot of people coming out and doing trail maintenance. Dodson Harper. Hefe, um, you know, Bill and Susan from Tamichi, those guys were always coming out helping. So <clears throat> it was great. We had a good community of what we, what we didn't have was someone to pull it together, but we had plenty of people who wanted to work. And, and then Gunny Trails just sort of, um, you know, developed over time, started the Growler in 2008. And this was something I got from Imba. Imba told me, Dave, our best local organizations have at least a part-time paid executive director. And, and some of them have a full-time paid executive director. So that told me, okay, we need this. We need resources to pay somebody. That somebody's probably going to be me to start, and we need a mechanism to raise these funds. And that ended up being the Growler. Uh, so the Growler now, you know, it basically pays for for Gunnison Trails to have a, a full-time ED, and that's Tim Kugler now. It was me for a while, and obviously it was a process of getting that that event up and up and running. Um, but look at look at what what we've been able to accomplish. Uh, and then, you know, the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association was always a very proud all-volunteer organization. And then at some point, I think the, you know, the same, the same light bulb went on with those guys. It's like, you know what? Trails are too important to leave to chance and to volunteers exclusively because volunteers come and go, volunteers burn out. We need to make sure that, that we have this, this mechanism in place. So Crested Butte's done a phenomenal job uh, with the Conservation Corps. What Dave Ox has done is the ED. Uh, and the rest of their staff and their board and all of their supporters up here. And you see in other places too, Trail 2000 in Durango, uh, Sierra Trail Buttes um, out in, uh, in the Downeyville area of California, um, Evergreen, the statewide organization in Washington, the New England Mountain Bike Association. There's so many examples of organizations and they're not all, you know, there's great volunteer organizations as well. Salida Mountain Trails, they get tons of stuff done and they're, they're still an all volunteer organization. There's many ways to make it happen, but for for me and for Gunnison, I chose uh, you know to try to have that paid executive director, um, and and that's still um, you know it's still going today. And hopefully the growlers stay strong. And there's other fundraising mechanisms that we have: the Pennies for Trails program. Some of the local businesses uh, you know add a one percent on, and um, you know that really helps us with with what we're trying to do, and you know maintaining the trails, educating the trail users, and building some new trails is, you know, that's what a lot of organizations are focused on. Uh, I love what Crested Butte has done here. They're putting the focus more on stewardship. Other organizations put it all on trail development, but really that uh, every place is going to be a little bit different as far as what they focus on. But, um, you know, those are really the key elements. It's, you know, maintain what we've already got, educate our, our user groups, and then, you know, pursue some new opportunities when we can. Hmm. Back to racing. When does the Leadville 100 first come under your radar as a thing? The Leadville 100 came on my radar in, you know, 94, 
94, 95, somewhere in there, obviously I had heard of the run and the bike came along and I'd never raced my bike a hundred miles, but <laughs> somewhere in there, maybe it was mid nineties, uh, I, I, I had a, I saw that I did never race on that weekend and I wanted to do it. So I called up Leadville and I talked to Marilee and I said, <laughs> hey, you know, I want to do the Leadville 100. And she's like, yeah, sorry, the race is full. And I said, yeah, you know, but I'm, I'm a pro. And she says, I don't care who you are. You know, the race is full. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And, and you know what, that, that stuck with me, but it, I respected it. I absolutely respected it. So then I kind of, you know, didn't lose interest, but it was just off my radar. And then in 2002, I decided I want to do the Leadville 100, and I'm certainly not going to call them up and tell them I'm a pro. <laughs> so I, I, you know, and then it was a paper entry form, and you fill it out, and you get, you put a check in, and you send it away. And um, I get a little card back. It says, "Sorry, you know, you've been declined. Try again next year." And I was like, "Oh, I guess I didn't get in." So next year, same thing, sent it away. And it was just that I wanted to try it. I wanted to raise 100 miles. It was close to my house. My career was winding down at that point. Um, but I still, you know, had the fire to train and compete and, and all that. And here's, here's a good challenge. I could train for a, you know, a long race, uh, something I'd never done before and just see what it was like. So I got in, in 2003 and, um, just went to Leadville to just, to just check it out. And, um, you know, no designs on, of course I was going to, you know, try to do as well as I could, but, um, you know, I had, had no, no expectations and didn't even know the course was an out and back for the longest time. I, you get this packet in the mail with all this information and, and I'm looking at this map because I'm always obsessed with the course. I want to know the yeah. course. Um, and finally, I was like, oh my gosh, this course is an out and back. I'm always <laughs> looking for loops. So that was, you know, that was new information for me. But um, anyway, it, it uh, you know, did it for the first time in 2003. Had never, never set, I'm going to win as many Leadvilles as I can. That was never the goal. It was, you know, just did it that one time. Um, you know, had a good race there, ended up winning. And then, you know, Ken Clover, the promoter, he'd call me the next spring, Dave, you know, are you in? And, oh yeah, you know, I'll go ahead and do it again. And, you know, because the same thing gives me something to train for. Yeah. It's in August. I, you know, it allows me just to kind of, you know, focus my summer on that. Uh, you know, just gets me out the door, you know, something, <laughs> something out there that, and then, you know, did it in 2004 and, Five. And at that time, you know, my my next door neighbor, Brian Wickenhauser and a bunch of the gunny folks and, and Mike Closer too over in Vail were doing adventure racing. And I got kind of pulled into adventure racing a little bit around that time. And we were also, we were doing the Grand Traverse. I was, I was you know, yeah. doing that. So that whole world of, of endurance uh, skiing, uh, which is, you know, you do the alley loop when the skate skiing is, is good. You ski the mountain when it's, when it's you know, powder. Yeah. You go out touring in the backcountry, all with the designs of, of having enough fitness then to ski to Aspen in, <laughs> in late March, you know, and I did that with my partner, Jason Stubbe for a number of years during that same time. Uh, and then it was just, it was doing, you know, longer mountain bike races in the summer. I did the Cocopelli trail race where we left at midnight, you know, out of the fruit of trailhead and raced to Moab, you know, off the radar, no number plates, no t-shirt, no entry fee. Um, just out there and I was, you know, battling with Jesse Giacomate who uh, works at SRAM uh, all night long and, um, you know, did uh, the Vapor Trail, the very first Vapor Trail, the, the CB Classic here. You know, those those endurance races were a lot of fun and Leadville was just part of that whole mix. Hmm. Um, a different version of it, of course. But um, then it, it suddenly got serious in 2006 or more serious because in, in, I think it was in December 2006, Lance Armstrong said, I'm going to do the Leadville 100 um, this next year, 2007. And I was like, whoa, that would be interesting because yeah. I had won four to that point. 
Um, and I was like, that would, that would change the dynamic. And he was drawn in by Chris Carmichael, one of his trainers yeah. with Carmichael Training Systems. They always had camps and you know, they had a, a pretty good interest in Leadville and a lot of uh, their athletes were interested in Leadville. So I think Chris said, hey, Lance, there's this race in Leadville. I mean, you live in Aspen, it happens right over the hill. It's pretty cool, you should check it out. Um, so Lance announced he was gonna do it and that you know, got my attention. Within a week of that, Floyd Landis said, yeah, I'm going to do it too. And that was right on the heels of him winning the tour, yeah. testing positive, um, you know, going on his sort of, you know, redemption tour, whatever it was. Uh, Lance pulled back from doing it. I don't know why, but I think it was probably because he didn't want to mix, mix up his world with Floyd's world. Floyd still did it. And right to the start of that race, I wasn't ever positive that Lance wouldn't be there. Uh, but it was Floyd, and and Floyd, you know, that was the that was the most intense race I ever had at Leadville. Was the race against Floyd? I mean, it was a, it was tooth and nail right to the end. Uh, we got separated uh, going up the the Columbine climb. He was just a machine. I couldn't believe how I got on his wheel. I'm like, okay, I'm good. And then I just watched him just power away from me, and I was just like, holy cow, this guy. But then up top, it gets steeper and, and more technical. And um, I was, and he came back to me on that. I was like, okay, so he likes. He likes the smoother stuff that's not as steep, and I like the stuff that's steeper and nastier. And um, but we were never together. We just kept sort of, um, you know, he had an issue. He had a flat tire. He had to stop for a wheel change. Uh, then I was I had a slow leak that I stopped and and was going to change it. And then all of a sudden decided you know we were running really lightweight tubeless at, at the time when we called it ghetto tubeless. And we weren't <laughs> ever sure how long the air was going to stay in your tires. Um, but you wanted a light bike, right? And it, it, it sealed with about 18 PSI in my rear. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to just go with that. So I had a really soft rear tire for, you know, the last, you know, three quarters of that race. Last three quarters. Yeah. No, long, <laughs> long way. I had great traction going up, but it was a little, yeah. a little dicey going down. And, and Floyd would just nip at me. I like, I, he was, he was minutes behind me. At one point I could see him back there, a little orange speck. I'm like, okay, I'm good. Not 10 minutes later, he was 20 meters behind me. Some people were like, go Dave, right at the bottom of the power line, go Dave, go Floyd. I'm like, go Floyd. <laughs> I turn around, there he is. I'm like, oh. But then it was a steep climb and I got away from him again, but he did the same thing at the top of the pavement on, on Turquoise Lake. It was go Dave, go Floyd. I'm like, no. And there he was, so right to the end and, and ended up you know, staying ahead of him. And, but it was a battle. Uh, you know, Going up that last thing called the Boulevard, I was just completely tapped. I could see him back there. If he had had a little bit more and would have come around me, there was nothing I could do. But I'm sure he was feeling as bad as I was and you know, ended up, you know, just breaking seven hours, which had never been done at the time. Now, of course, they've crushed six hours. Um, but that was an intense race. That mm -hmm. really was. At the time coming into that, were you were you intimidated or were you kind of a bit more like, that's cool, fancy road biker guys, like you're kind of in my wheelhouse right now? Like Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It wasn't fancy road bike guy because Floyd raced mountain bikes. Yeah, that's true. Um, Floyd's a cool guy. Uh, I like Floyd a lot. I didn't get to know him that well. He was always really shy and quiet when he was racing mountain bikes, but he went to the road and had great success there. But it was, you know, I'd won four of them. And, you know, I don't want to say I was never challenged, but it, it wasn't that hard for me. And I wasn't training specifically. I was just training distance and endurance. Whereas once I once it was the race with Floyd, I went back and I, I dug out all my old cross-country training and actually started training for the, for the event, you know, doing intensity, um, just taking my old cross-country training and kind of tweaking it a little bit for the Leadville 100 and preparing, you know, much differently because I knew it was going to be harder. Um, you know, set up a much, you know, a, a, put more care into my, the setup of my bicycle and things like that. No, it was, I was, I was stoked because of the challenge, you know, yeah. like, I want the challenge. Like, yeah, yeah. Th this is going to be a tough race. But yeah, I was, I was just 
I was just, I mean, the challenge is everything. And now I'm going to get to, you know, try out my, you know, see how I can do against this guy. And it was, that was the 2007 version. And then, you know, I didn't know that Lance was going to come to the race in 2008, but you know, a guy up here, Steve Mabry, friend of mine, he's like, you know, this is during the winter. He goes, I was talking to a friend of mine who knows somebody who knows Lance and he says he's doing it. So that was all I needed to hear. And I knew it anyway. I'm like, I'm training as if Lance as is going to be there, yeah. even though I never heard anything about him being there until maybe two or three weeks before the event. Um, it was confirmed. And I think I was, you know, Stan from Stan's wheels. Um, he, he was helping me and he, you know, he set me up with some really light wheels and the Crow tire, which is just an insane light tire. And uh, he called me up um, after, you know, I'd been, I had this stuff for while. He goes, Dave, I just got to tell you, I just sent Lance the exact same stuff I sent you. Uh, so there, you know, Lance and I are out there on Stan's wheels and Stan's crows, <laughs> hard tails. Uh, maybe he was on a full suspension. I can't even remember. But um, anyway, it, it, it was, it was great, but I didn't know until then. And, but it wasn't as if, oh shit, here comes Lance. It was, Hey, I'm ready. I've been, I've been preparing as huh. if he's going to be here. So I just keep doing what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was nerve wracking before the race a little bit. You know, there was a lot of hype, um, that I wasn't really used to. And, um, you know, my family showed up the night before the race with, um, with all good intentions of, there were yellow signs with black lettering that said, go weans and, and yellow t-shirts that said, go weans with black lettering. And I saw these things and they had a whole bunch of them. They're like, yeah, we're gonna have signs everywhere and t-shirts and hats. I was like, you guys can't, this stuff can't leave the condo. Those are, those are Lance's colors. Yeah. You, you can't. And they're like, what? We don't, they didn't, they were, they were disappointed, but I'm like, no, this stuff doesn't leave this condo. Okay. That's, that's, that's it. And then the other part too was, was um, I always prepared my brother's bike because my brother started doing the race. So it's the night before and I'm, you know, I'm putting his number on, I'm lubing his chain because he would never do these things. I would do it for him. And uh, it was just funny because, you know, I've kind of got a headache. I'm, I'm there, you know, just not feeling that great little. And then, and then the family, you know, the whole family gets involved in the condo bustling and, and there's yellow t-shirts that say, go Dave and stuff like that. And anyway, um, just one of those where finally wake up, the race starts. Um, it didn't start fast. That was the last year it started slow. Uh, very comfortable, big group going up Columbine, probably, you know, 15 of us going up Columbine. Uh, and then Lance just, just went to the front. He didn't attack, but he just went to the front and started pedaling harder. And I got on his wheel and, you know, a couple minutes I looked back and no one, we ever, everyone was gone. Just me and Lance heading up Columbine to the turnaround. And we got up there and we were pretty close to the turnaround. And, and then I just sort of reflected and I said, this is success. I mean, I'm here. Huh. I don't care what happens at this point. Um, you know, I feel good. And, and, you know, if, if it all ends now, I'm, I'm good. It just was sort of a, a you know, a little bit of happiness kind of overtook me for whatever reason at that point, because there was all that stress and you almost don't recognize the, the stress leaving. But once you get on the bike, all that kind of evaporates. And the start is always a little, it's a downhill start. It's cold. You want to make sure you get to the, you know, you get sorted out, you make it up over the first climb. And, and so then all that had happened and it was all good. And, and, uh, then Lance and I rode together for the entire race. And, um, you know, I think we tested each other a couple of times here and there. I tested him on this place called the Cobra where you, you have to push your bike up this really steep hill. It's not in the course anymore. And um, I stepped off, you know, as planned way down low and he kept trying to ride it. And I think maybe his shorts got hung up on his seat and they straddle on the bike. And I just, you know, slowly, you know, by design, just worked my way up over this thing and put a gap on him there. And um, just, just took note of that 
and then he, he got back on and then he asked me, are we gonna ride the power line? Or are we gonna walk it? I said, well, I think, I think we're gonna walk it. I always walk that thing. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't respond to that. And then when we got there and the conditions were perfect, it had rained a little bit, so it was good traction. We rode the whole bottom part, which is pretty steep. Um, and now it's not that big a deal to ride it. People do it a lot, but we rode it. Um, but then on the upper part, I gapped him again. And so I just took note of that. Didn't try to keep it, you know, wasn't worried about that. And he got back on. And then, um, and we're just trading poles the whole time. It was just pace line, back and forth, back and forth. Are you guys, are you talking a much? A little bit, not much. I mean, at one point he goes, no, he doesn't talk a lot, at least in that situation. I think that's, I mean, that's how they compete um, on the road. There's not a lot of, of necessarily the same camaraderie with your competition. But at one point he did, he goes, so Dave, are you a school teacher? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no. Um, and so anyway, there wasn't a lot of, of conversation. Um, and then finally, at the, at the, with 10 miles to go, I pulled off to let him come by. And he said, no, I'm done, go. And I, and I said, no, come on. He says, no, I'm done, go. And, and I went. <laughs> but I looked back and he was still, I could still see the yellow jersey, the yellow and black, Livestrong jersey. And so I knew he hadn't given up, so, but I felt good. So that, that race wasn't intense. Huh. Uh, until all of a sudden my, my rear tire started to go flat, um, you know, with, I don't know, mile to go. And I remember my son was there and I'm like, oh, I'm losing my air. I didn't know how far behind me he was because I knew he wasn't giving up. He had just slowed down. And so I was thinking here, I'm gonna get all this way and then I'm, I'm gonna have to ride in on a flat or something. But anyway, that's why when I, the finish line shot from me um, beating Floyd is just elation. I'm just so excited. Um, but the one from, from Lance, I'm just, <laughs> I've just got this look on my face. And it was all because of that flat tire. You know, I not had that flat and I could have just rolled across. I think I would have had a, a, a different, you know, more of a smile on my face. But as it was, it was just that right at the end of the race um, was, uh, was interesting. But anyway, the next year he did ride, he had to ride a flat. Anyway, he just kicked my ass the next year. Um, you know, up one side, down the other. It wasn't even close. So he came back and, and uh, made his statement. <laughs> if you got to have your a streak ended uh, to have to have Lance be the guy is uh, not not the worst thing in the world, I don't think. Yeah, no, and I was still happy with that that race. I was second, uh, a distant second, um, but there were some good riders in the field that year. Travis Brown and yeah. you know uh, Matt Shriver, and, and there were some there were some good riders. So I was happy with that. And then even the next year, I did it one more time, and I got fourth, and that was the year that Levi won. Uh, Levi, Jeremy Horgan, Kabelski, Todd Wells, and then I was fourth. Uh, Jeremiah Bishop and I came in together fourth and fifth. But that was my fastest Leadville ever. That the last one I did, the eighth one. So, um, you know, winning. I like to win. It's fun to win. But that's that's it. It's fun. It's nice. Yeah. It, it isn't. Um, I have to win at all costs. Um, you know, if everything lines up and and I've prepared well and I can win, it's great. You know, I love to do that. Everybody does. Um, but it isn't, winning isn't the only thing for me. It's certainly a great goal to try. Um, and it feels good, but that's about it. I mean, you know, achieving success in sports, you know, really in the big picture isn't really all that important. I love that. I, I didn't realize your last race was your fastest time. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I'll just, I'll just stick with that one. People are like, you're going to do lead again? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious to just get your take on as you survey the landscape, uh, current landscape of mountain biking. Let's let's focus specifically here on the kind of race and event side of things. What's your take? Yeah, you know, I think it's 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 going to be a natural process. People people are going to be riding um, 
what is appealing at the time. And right now, it feels like endurance, the longer stuff might be waning a little bit. You know, the growler was down just a little bit this year, the the long growler, the full growler. Um, I'm hearing that maybe from, from some other race promoters, but the calendar is getting pretty full as well. Yeah. So there's more competition. So that's another, another reason. Um, I think we're seeing a lot less people riding the road anymore, the road, and, and there's this huge increase in gravel racing and gravel riding. Gravel has a ton of interest in it. The Dirty Kansas, I heard four or 5,000 competitors there and gravel races all across the country. Gravel is way more accessible to more people because there's, there are literally gravel roads almost everywhere, uh, whereas there aren't mountain biking trails necessarily everywhere. Um, you know, the enduro events are really popular and that's, uh, um, you know, that's really cool that there's such a social aspect to that, whereas races where they fire a gun and then there's a finish line, I mean, you're just on the whole time. There's no social aspect to that other than maybe after the race. Whereas enduro, you've got you know your your transition to the next stage, and you can ride together. You're not being timed. You get to the top. You know there's probably some hanging out, waiting for your start position. Uh, you make new friends. So I think that's really appealing to a lot of people um, because there, I mean there are different kinds of, of mountain bikers. I'm uh, a more solitary mountain biker. I like to ride alone or with my wife or with a good friend. Um, I don't do group rides and, and I love group rides too, but I don't do tons of them. Other people riding is, is all social and you know, they don't do anything really but ride um, with friends and groups and, and that's what it's all about for them. And again, there are no right or wrong answers. Everybody's different. Um, so I think maybe some of the racing is more for the, um, you know, the solitary you know, racer and trainer and, and you know, some of the enduros, it's a, little, a lot more social, a lot more fun. Um, less pain as far as you don't have to push yourself going up hills. I mean, that's not for everybody. Um, but on the cross country side, you know, Kate Courtney, world champion, um, that's awesome. And there's, there's, you know, many other women and men who are, are starting to, you know, have some success at the World Cup level. And, and I, if, if, a, if an American male or female were to, to win an Olympic gold medal, that would, that would change mountain biking in a big way. And part of that is because of what's happening with NICA and high school mountain bike racing all around the country right now. The National Interscholastic Cycling Association, high school mountain bike racing, 25 states, 20,000 um, student athletes um, racing mountain bikes for their high school, 15,000 licensed coaches, I believe. Uh, this program is you know, spreading across the country like wildfire. NICA um, identified Kate Courtney. I mean, the talent identification that goes on within NICA is, is great. Um, and it's gonna, it's, it's already producing world-class athletes. That's certainly not the most important element of NICA. The most important element of NICA is that they are, you know, building solid people. Um, you know, the values that, that this program has um, are phenomenal. And it's just, you know, good person, good student, good athlete in that order. Something that Dwayne Vandenbush said, uh, Dr. Vandenbush down at Western, Western Colorado University. Um, but so the racing is, is a part of it, but they, the, the, I mean, mountain biking, there's so many lessons to be learned, um, with mountain biking, with, you know, hard work and determination and, you know, patience and skill progression, um, getting away from your screen, uh, getting out in the outdoors. It's exposing uh, a lot of kids to some, some really, um, you know, great things that they can take into their life. And, you know, maybe they all won't continue to ride mountain bikes, um, when they're young, because as young, young, old teenagers and young adults, it's a pretty busy time. And to have a mountain bike and to go to college and, you know, some of them, sure, they'll race collegiately or they'll just ride recreationally. Others may lose it 
But I have a feeling a lot of them are gonna come back as 30 year olds because suddenly they're gonna be married. They're gonna have a job. You know, they're gonna have you know, more of a real, a real life going on and they're, maybe their fitness is waning and they need some, some stress relief from work or whatever is going on in their life. And they're gonna remember, oh yeah, I, I, ride, I rode mountain bikes when I was in high school and, and I love that. And there's trail system right over here. So, um, you know, and that's where uh, IMBA and, and local mountain biking organizations and local partners for mountain biking organizations come in is we need to provide those places to ride all around the country. And, you know, what IMBA's, IMBA's vision is that everyone has a great place to ride mountain bikes close to where they live, as well as access to iconic backcountry mountain biking experiences too. So one of our monikers is more trails close to home. And obviously in Crested Butte, um, the backcountry is close to home for people here. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. It's not as if IMBA is just solely focused on, you know, creating trails close to communities. You know, we're focused on the, the whole, um, the whole lot, but there is, uh, so much of our riding does need to take place close to home because we only have so much time in our busy world and, you know, loading a bike on a car is great and we can do that for a short trip, but it's also pretty nice to roll out of your driveway and have, you know, maybe there's a, a concrete path or a bike lane that you can take for a mile or two and then boom, you're on the dirt. And depending on where you're at, it may be an amazing trail system or maybe, you know, a little bit small and modest, but it still allows us to get out and, and do something for our minds and do something for our bodies um, that's really hard to replicate. I mean, I think that mountain biking, the, the technology of the bicycles has, has come so far. Bikes are so good right now. And, and now we're starting to see the trails developing at the same rate. So now we've got you know, the perfect bike and amazing trails. And, and mountain bikers are, are connoisseurs of, of great trails. They really want good trails and they demand good trails. And you know, if ever you build a trail and it's kind of a, a vanilla trail, you know, you're gonna get called out by mountain bikers. Now, we do need the full spectrum of trails. And I think that's what happened along the way is since so many mountain bikers were involved in trail development, we developed a lot of medium to medium hard trails. And so it was really hard for a beginner who was interested to jump in. And Hartman's is a really good example. Everything's pretty hard out there. And if you've never ridden before and your fitness isn't that good, it's kind of hard to have a good experience there. Um, unless you go up and you get on Evans Loop, for example, but it's, it's in the interior of the system. So, you know, very important to, to mountain biking and to IMBA is that the full spectrum of trails is there from easily accessible green beginner trails that people can learn on um, with, with good, you know, opportunities for skill progression, right up through, you know, stuff that I won't even want to ride, you know, that's so gnarly because there are those riders out there, that's what they're looking for. They want to be challenged every time they get on their bicycle and they're looking for those trails that, that, that offer that. And, you know, that's important that just like a ski area, you want to have the full spectrum there, you know, and you got, so you've got your flow and your jump trails, you've got old school cross country, um, really nasty, gnarly, technical, steep, uh, and, and the easily accessible beginner trails. So something for everybody. And that's really, um, that's the foundation for the best mountain bike trail community is if you have you have that full spectrum, just like a ski area. If you're all double black diamonds, then you've got a good niche, but you're only gonna to appeal to a certain type of skier and snowboarder. And if you have a flat mountain that's all green and blue, same thing, you'll be very fam family friendly, but there's not gonna be something there for everybody. And not every place can have every kind of trail, but um, certainly that's what in, in the planning that IMBA does, we look, we tell communities, hey, you know, ideally you've got a little bit of everything in your trail system. You are the executive director of IMBA, uh, you've, and you've been in that role for how long now? A little over two years. A little over two years. And you just got back from an IMBA board meeting, right? 
So I'm just curious, um, again, we're gonna, you and I are gonna do this again and we're gonna go deep on a lot of the specific issues, but maybe to bring this to a close for now, I would love to just hear a bit of a state of the union and maybe coming off of this board of directors meeting, tell me about some of the priorities or specific challenges that you guys just identified or kind of are at the forefront of IMBA's radar currently? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, very important to IMBA moving forward um, is that we become a leading resource for our local partners in pursuit of our vision. That includes affiliated and non-affiliated mountain biking organizations all across the country um, and, and the world, really. Land managers are hugely important in this. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, all the youth programming that's going on, uh, NICA, Little Bella's Trip for Kids Scouting, uh, being a resource for them. These, this program is, is popping up in places where there are no trails. And parents are going, why are there no trails here? So we can certainly um, you know, focus on that and be a resource there. Uh, funders and other community stakeholders. Um, trail development, especially professional trail development, is very expensive. So connecting funding to local efforts to put you know, high-quality trails on the ground is very important. And engaging those community stakeholders, maybe the people that don't ride, the tourism associations, the county commissioners, the elected officials, um, there's, there's, a, you know, there's so many other important stakeholders than, than just the mountain bikers. Uh, and then the mountain bike trail building industry, um, developing, you know, helping develop best practices um, so that we can be certain that the trails that uh, are the vision of the land manager and the designer are actually what end up being built on the ground. It's, it's, you know, we're not to the point yet like a building where we can, um, you know, reduce a trail to blueprints so they're spec'd exactly the same depending on who builds it. So we want to make sure that, um, you know, we always have that quality. The quality of the trails is so important. And then IMBA is a global where to ride resource uh, with our focus on our ride centers and our epic designations. Um, the most common, uh, the most popular pages on our website are, are where to ride. Uh, there's a lot of people inter interested in destination mountain biking. And um, as far as our ride centers and epics, um, updated criteria, new branding, and uh, marketing and PR strategies that can help these areas uh, you know, really develop the best possible mountain biking experience because again mountain bikers are connoisseurs and the ones that are traveling around they want to know when they go to you know crested butte or park city or or any other location that that everything they're looking for is going to be there and these communities don't always know what that is and it's a moving target trail development is evolving all the time just like the technologies of the bicycles so that's going to be a, a certainly an important uh, area where we focus and then to be a worldwide leader in trail planning and design it all starts with planning and design. I mean, that's how trails are developed these days. The days of, of you know, just scratching something out, um, you know, riding something in are gone. And we need well-designed, well-developed systems. I mean, the trail itself is central to our experience as mountain bikers. So that's one element of, of planning and design. But the other part of it is how we interact with other users when we're out there. That also affects our experience. We could have an amazing trail, but if we have a, a bad experience with a hiker or an equestrian or something like that, it kind of it's a you know it's a buzzkill for our experience. So the planning isn't just making the best possible trail, but it's it's laying the trails and the trail systems and out and the users in such a way that everybody has the best possible experience. Because it's really important to remember that we're sharing these landscapes in so many situations 
with other trail users. And while there's more mountain bikers all the time, there's also more hikers and more trail runners all the time too. Yep. Uh, more motos out on the trail. I don't know that horse use is necessarily growing. Uh, that might be a flat line. But um, you know, we need to remember that, that for the most part, we're sharing these landscapes. But that's also where the resort riding comes in is you have some, some trails that are directional. They're for mountain bikes only. Um, if they're list, lift accessed or not, but we know we can let our brakes go in some of those situations and and really have a good time. But we also need to recognize when are we riding on a multiple you know a multiple use system that has two way traffic that has a lot of blind spots where we need to ride you know in a much um, you know safer manner. Um, so um, that planning design piece is huge. And then international uh, trail builder education and best practices. This is something that the trail building industry is is lacking right now. Is is qualified people to work in it? It's a trade. There's you know if you just want to be a trail builder, they'll they'll bring you on. But if you don't know the basics, uh, it's really hard for some of these established companies to to get done what they need to get done. They're crying for um, an educated workforce. Just like if you're an electrician, you you can't just necessarily pull someone off the street that doesn't know anything. So there's a lot of interest, and we're working toward these um this, this trail building education program so we can um you know really advance the trail building industry and it needs it right now the trail building industry is completely tapped if you had a pocket full of money you couldn't find someone to build you a high quality trail in the next year so communities are, are desiring trails all around the country and all around the world we take international inquiries all the time Colombia, hey you know we're we're going on this mountain biking thing we need help what are great trails and that's really the the piece of it is high quality trails are everything and it isn't it isn't easy to do so that the really good trail builders these days they have so much experience and and then it starts with planning too the the, the vision that that the the planners and the trail builders have today is just phenomenal i mean it's a it's a very professional industry and it's it's a completely different world than what we were in 10 or 15 years ago. So um, that's really important. And, and so, I mean, those things alone uh, are, are enough to keep us plenty busy. And of course, any conversation with mountain bikers, um, congressionally designated wilderness and bike, bike access in those areas will come up. And then of course, the e-mountain bike topic will always come up. So those are always certainly in the mix. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we're, and we and we definitely you know work in those areas and we have those discussions and we're monitoring all of those conversations and all of those developments and access is still very important you know we're working hard for access in montana um, where they are challenged by wilderness study areas and recommended wilderness areas and we're at the table for you know plenty of wilderness conversations too um, to make sure that working with our local uh, organizations and, and understanding where the important mountain biking assets are um, that we can, you know, hopefully work with the conservation community to protect lands, um, but also uh, allow mountain biking to continue. I'm curious whether you think that in general, these conversations, whether whether it's with, you know, people who have legitimate questions and concerns about protecting wildlife uh, and wilderness spaces and the rest, are we generally talking together in a more constructive way? Or it's like, it just really depends on this area versus that area and conversations are good in these few particular spots and battles are raging over here. It, it's different everywhere you go, um, but anywhere that it's, that it's framed as a battle or a war, usually there are losers. And 
really the, the collaborative efforts are the most important ones. And it feels like for the most part, people want to collaborate and they want to get together and they want to find solutions. Land managers certainly do. The last thing land managers want to deal with is warring factions and they'll just walk away from that yeah. in many cases. So I think you have the, the edges of these conversations which, which, which really want to dig in and fight and, and they're, they're loud. Um, there's a lot of, of you know, more thoughtful people in the middle who we need to bring in and have these conversations. Again, the public lands are, are shared and there's a lot of interests in them that are trying, you know, vying and jockeying for um, position, if you will. And, you know, where conservation was alone initially back in the 60s and 70s, and then mountain biking came along and realized, hey, we need to be part of the conversation. We need to be at the table. And then we're part of the decision making. And, and IMBA was the, the catalyst for that and, and, and made that happen. And now that we're at the table and we're having success, and then other people are seeing, you know, mountain bike systems develop. And so, uh, you know, in some of these areas, at least in Colorado in particular, and in the West, some of the, the hunting and angling communities are, are, you know, starting to come out and say, hey, what, you know, this, this mountain biking, I think it's potentially disrupting wildlife. So they're suddenly realizing, wow, the mountain bikers have been at the table. We need to get to the table. So it's almost like you've got this, this you know, the table only had a few chairs around it, <laughs> then the mountain bikers joined it, and now all their other outdoor interests are starting to come in and realize that we have to have these conversations. But it, oftentimes when people initially come in, they come in, you know, with their fists up and they're ready to fight. Um, quickly you'll realize that very, very few times will you have success with that. So again, we need to get around the table. We need to get the people who are re ready to have the serious conversation, roll up the sleeves and work. And that's really what we're always um, preaching is, is the collaboration, the partnerships, the cooperation. We're not gonna be successful with what we wanna do on public lands if we're not able to you know, join hands with the hunting community and the conservation community and the hikers and the trail runners and you know even the motorized community and others i mean we're we all have a love for the public lands and right now recreation is just is just very disjointed so the more we can all come together and agree to disagree on some things we're going to be a force that can rival what we have now with oil and gas and extraction and commercial timber harvest because they're a well-oiled machine. Recreation, we've got silos and, and warring factions, and so we're not um, we're not as good yet at being one consolidated voice. And the more that we can pull together and do that, um, the more powerful and influential we'll be, and the more opportunities we'll have to to hopefully maintain clean air and water and amazing public lands and natural landscapes and mountain biking certainly is a big part of that and, and growing like i said we're gonna we're gonna do this again and uh follow up and get a bit deeper on some of these topics but for now is there any kind of call to action that you would want to leave everyday mountain bikers uh you know get, get involved yeah. If, if you love mountain biking, um, you know, get involved. Find your local organization. Uh, if there isn't one, um, you don't necessarily have to start one. <laughs> but if you're of that, you know, if, if you're that kind of a person, you could. But find your local organization. Um, ask them how you can help. 
Um, certainly, you know, financial contributions are part of that. There are 200 IMBA-affiliated organizations across the country. There's probably another 200 that aren't IMBA-affiliated, and you just need to poke around a little bit, ask other mountain bikers, go into the local bike shop, go to the IMBA website. There's a resource there that will, will show you if there's an IMBA club in your area, and uh, support your local club with, you know, a financial contribution, whether it's, you know, 25 bucks for membership, or if you have more capacity and you can write a check for $500 or $1,000 or more, um, please do that because they need those resources. Um, likewise, you know, go to imba.com and, and take a look at at, um, at our website and what we're doing and consider supporting the national effort as well. But um, I'll tell people every time, you know, if they say, Dave, I'm going to support one, what, what do I support? I say, I always support local. You know, local is where it happens. Um, but we feel like uh, the, a strong national organization is very important too because that national voice, um, while what we, what we offer to different local organizations around the country is going to differ, um, there's some important things that, that, that the national organization can do. Um, and again, it's different for every place, but, um, and, and roll up your sleeves and, and do some work. Not everybody uh, necessarily wants to put a tool in their hand and go out and do, you know, trail maintenance or trail building. But if you've got graphic design skills, if you're a bookkeeper, um, there's plenty of, of things that you can do to help local mountain biking organizations. And, um, also, you know, ride responsibly, be a good, be a good representative of mountain bikers out there. Um, you, you know, yield the trail, um, ride under control when it's a, when it's a two way trail with blind spots and there's other users out there. Um, and just be a, a great, uh, ambassador for mountain biking and, um, always try to ride as responsibly as you can and enjoy the sport because it's really, uh, you know, we're really lucky when you think about it, that we get to go out and, and pedal these amazing bikes on these amazing trails in phenomenal landscapes. I was just down at Hartman, I was about a week and a half ago now with my girlfriend and it was her very first mountain bike ride ever, ever. And we started on Evans Loop and, uh, you know, we did, well, I did the first lap with her and then I actually met, uh, met one of our reviewers and we rode some other stuff, but we came back and she'd ridden four laps and she was like, this is the best thing ever. I think it was the first time I've ever gone out with somebody on their very first mountain bike ride. And she was just so, so stoked. And, uh, we're going to ride again in Hartman this Saturday. And, uh, it was just very cool. And it just opened up this whole new world to her and stuff that we're going to be doing together now. And so on a very, uh, very tangible and personal level, like Thank you for all the work that you've done in that Hartman area and uh, already looking forward to our next conversation. Likewise, and thanks for having me. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Dave for the conversation, and we'd encourage you to go look up your local trails association to see how you can help the cause. And as always, I want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. I want to thank all of you for listening, and we will talk to you again next week.